clubhouse. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're going to discuss the second episode of the fourth season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This episode was called Nightshade. The title sheds light quickly on the Commander Key situation. Exactly. Nightshade, in case you didn't know, is the poison. Hooray, the poison. We were looking it up for multiple meanings and we might have come up with a couple of alternates. It's synonymous with being bittersweet. How do you like that? Ooh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot because there is a ton in this episode that is truly bittersweet. This episode seemed a little more plot heavy than the last one, uh, less moody in a way, but there's a lot that happened. We got to go a little bit more around the countryside, see another instance of Jezebel's where we wondering in this, in the first couple of seasons, well, are the commanders reserving their depravity for just one location? No, it turns out they've got them wherever they need to let off a little steam, apparently in the countryside or whatever. We also spent a lot more time in Canada with not only the Waterfords, but Moira and what's going on with that bunch up there. So this answers a little bit of what we said at the tail end of the last podcast and what we wanted to see moving forward was splitting time amongst lots of characters. So we got to see more of that. Let's end with June. So how about we go up to Canada and start with Moira? Okay, sounds good. So it turns out that Moira and Luke and Rita are working on a, it looks like a fundraiser dinner situation where they are gathering supporters and funds to help the kids who have now been brought to Canada, help them get more settled in. And, you know, this is a lot of what we're going to see throughout this episode in the bittersweet. We're going to see moments where it seems like something's really good is happening. And then these like two steps backwards. So Rita goes up and she starts to talk a little bit and you can see quickly, this is too much for her. And she's going to take like two steps back. Like, I don't know if I can handle all this. I really felt it was fascinating that they already had her up there doing any kind of talking on behalf of what had happened. It seems like when we saw Moira come across the border, wasn't there like a ton of like, like shock blankets and remember all the intake that went through and and all the things that happened? Like there was so much like, I guess I want to say like comforting and thoughtfulness to the trauma of what had happened. And here was Rita, who was only a couple weeks in, and it seemed like she was expected to just like act like everybody else and know how to handle everything. That's a good point, because she showed a lot of signs of having trouble reacclimating to a normal country like Canada less quickly than maybe us TV watchers think one might, having only been in Gilead for a few years compared to your entire lifespan. It was odd to me about how much care had been taken with, you know, like I said, Moira coming across and and everything that had been going on there. We saw the what that looked like compared to how Rita, now maybe she was being handled behind the scenes in a very different way, but I was just kind of surprised that they would kind of put her up on a stage with a microphone. It seemed odd. What they're doing, do you suppose, and this may be like a duh, Paul kind of answer, just let me know. But do you suppose that if there is a country that all of a sudden receives a large amount of refugees all at once, rather than allow that that host government to just act like a government and be like, okay, you just go there, you go there, you go there, great, I'm done. Is there is the point of their group 
to raise money to help facilitate making that transition actually easier than a, than a government is actually prepared to make it in terms of vetting the matches for foster families or new families or extended families of the children and things like that. And, you know, making things easier, finding new matches when things go wrong, stuff like that, that would be slower if you relied on a government organ to do it. I think that you have a lot of interested parties in this case, you know, because of some of them were volunteers who had been a part of Gilead. It looked like, you know, you had Moira there, you had Rita, you had Luke who had this run in. You had you had all these these very interested parties. And then, of course, moving forward, we still had Emily who was working behind the scenes and making matches. So I think that it's a way to give those people something to be able to do and who may have known these children and would have a better shot at making those matches. So I don't know if it was totally about taking any kind of burden off the government or whatever. I think it was trying to maybe add a little bit of like human touch to like, who are these kids and what was this life like and how are we going to help them ease back into this world? Now, it was wild to me when we actually met that first little boy, Asher slash James, and how his aunt was treating him and how little understanding it seemed she had to what was going on there. It does seem that if you're going to take in a Gilead child refugee, and this is going to sound terrible, but hear me out, especially a male refugee who for his entire life has been raised to think that when he gets to be older, he's going to be the center of the universe, which is different than the way most people are raised right now. You're raised to think you're going to exist in a society and mm-hmm. you're going to work with everybody. I don't think that's the way that male children of commanders are are raised in Okay, Gilead. yeah, that's probably right. So then just to go be another kid at school in your aunt's house or whatever, you need at least a weekend's certificate that says, okay, I've learned enough about Gilead and the things that they're teaching these kids so that I can help. I'm not going to expect this kid to just flip like a switch to this new way of thinking. Well, and I appreciate that's that's a much larger way of looking at it than I was. I was really looking at the nuts and bolts of everyday life in Gilead about, you know, what do they eat? What is he you know, changing his name? I mean, this was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I don't know why you would call him a different name right away. Like, that's all wild to me. And maybe it was his original name because we don't know exactly how this all works. So I assume it was his original name, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like, as soon as she said, I get, I made him chicken nuggets and pizza and buttered noodles. I was like, oh, pff, girl, they don't eat any of that in Gilead. I knew in a second, as soon as she listed it off, I knew, oh, the problem is he doesn't know this food. I'm just surprised that they wouldn't have gotten like a pamphlet or something that was like, so you're getting a child from the angel <laughs> flight. You know, like right. you need to understand that they eat things like salads and things like soups and stuff that you could make like very organically, nothing processed. You know, they don't they don't have all these other canned items and stuff. No pizzas, <laughs> you know, something. But this, what surprised me, I guess, and what took me aback was that this is the first time we saw anyone treat someone from Gilead who was like a refugee situation like this with any amount of roughness, I guess, any amount of coldness, you know, like, well, he just doesn't do what I want him to do. And he just doesn't know his name. And he just going to act like this. 
I was like, what? Because we saw this with Aaron. Like, she didn't even talk for, like, a good period of time. No one was like, and she doesn't even talk. Like, you know, like, <laughs> nobody was doing this to our other people. So I'm like, I'm a little thrown. Like, is this season going to be where we're starting to peel back and we're starting to find layers of the Canadian population who they do not have the sympathy that the fir- the, the earlier seasons absolutely did. I mean, they were nothing but like open arms and hugs and understanding. And you've been through so much. This was not this episode. We weren't getting the same things. Well, I think in modern day Canada, you and I can say with a a small degree of certainty that just their, their, their plain old immigration plan is, is like, come to us if you have something to offer. Otherwise, you know, thanks for visiting that, that kind of policy. So the idea of taking on a bunch of refugees, you could see where, the, a populace, any populace, not just Canada, but anyone would, would be inundated with, say, like the news and different issues and things that are going on. Yeah, but Paul, these were people who were like kidnapped from I understand. America. Mm, do you? Because you're equating them to a different situation. No, I'm just trying to think of it from this person who already seems fatigued and they've only had this kid for three weeks kind of attitude. Like, how did they come into it? Well, maybe they've been fed this other stuff about... Well, the American refugees continue to be a burden to the Canadian free medical system, blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever would occur on the news for a nightly basis for the existence of Gilead as people continue to flood across. Are, the, are you the, getting that idea that people are continuing to flood across the no, border? No, not flood. Because you're confusing Maybe me. Maybe initially. Mean, there's 86 children we're talking about who came into the entire country of Canada. I understand. So I'm kind of like, I mean, you're, I mean. I just think it's a, it's a present problem. Okay. Okay, and so I'll give it that, but it's a very different tone than every other time we've had someone who is a refugee come in to the country. They've always been nothing but big woolly blankets and lots of love and cocoa. This is the first time I've seen someone, and certainly speaking to a child. A family member, a nephew. A family member. I was very thrown by this whole thing. I loved how Moira fixed the problem. I thought that her making the the combination of Rita needs some sort of touchstone here. She needs to nurture someone. She needs something that feels more familiar to her. And Asher slash James really needs a Martha in his life. He's missing his Martha and just doesn't even really understand this world. When Rita comes in and slips him that little plain little wooden elephant and was like can you just like hang on to this for me i was like i love this situation like this is so good and so perfect and i'm really interested to see how this is going to go i think this is a lot of what you and i are going to talk about in this entire episode of we are also covering this is us and there's an episode called both things can be true and so rita and asher can be happy to be out of gilead and they can know it's for the greater good on some level they can also be lost, scared, missing people that were left behind and not know how to act. All of it can be true at the same time and them not sort of be needing to be treated so poorly. Thank goodness for the Moiras of recognizing what was happening. That is what makes Moira's character in this episode very compelling is that she did recognize that. She did go back. She did have a solution. The solution worked. However, this is not her life's calling. This isn't what Mm. she wants to do forever. Yeah. That was a big admission when she said to Emily that she isn't really keen on this life, that she doesn't want to be mother to Nicole. She doesn't want to be living this life. 
you know, and we have a new relationship in her life that seems like it's a great opportunity for her to move on. She doesn't have to live this life. And when they're sitting on that stoop sharing some food and laughing and 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 her partner says, hey, you could come with me. I was like, oh my goodness, because talk about bittersweet. I mean, here you have someone who loves you and you can move on. You don't even have to talk about this stuff if you didn't want to. Or you can stay here and every day go visit the Asher James of the world and have to worry about what's going on and listen to everyone's crying and everything. Or you could just walk on and not take care of Nicole anymore and forget you even met Luke and just move on. Moira, oh. Moira is a, a combination of selfish and selfless. She's doing these things because of, of a selfless part of her personality. But don't forget, she's the one that ran off alone from the, you know, the handmade training center. Even if that got the rest of the girls in trouble, she was okay. So she ran off. She wound up You're at Jezebel's. You're that is selfish? I don't take that as, yeah, sure. Oh God, I just take that as like self-survival. Like, I mean, that's just. There's a self involved there. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm backing off that word. I don't think selfish is the right word. Maybe I just have a bad connotation of that. But I think it's, it, I think it was absolutely survival. That's part of the, the deal right now is that some of these people like Asher James and Rita and really to a large extent Moira, they're still in survival mode. They're still trying to figure out how to come out the other side of this. I include Emily in that. I include Luke in that. For all of them, I feel like we have to back up and use a completely different set of vocabulary because you can't say selfish if you were kidnapped and you ran away. You can't say you were selfish. You know, right. I mean, that's not the right word. So there's, you've got to think about it in a different context. They're not. I guess the idea uh, that that would get me if I was one of them was, is that even though I am safe, quote unquote safe, I'm not home yet. And no matter how long I stayed in Toronto, I don't know when I'd start to think of it as, as home. Probably I don't know that not you yet. ever would. I mean, I can say we're Americans and we have considered moving to Canada having to do with our kids. It has to do with a very specialized program that they have in Canada for deafblind children. And it's something we have a deafblind child that we've looked into. Now, as many times as we visited Canada and as lovely of a country to, as it is, it's not America for me. And it always, whenever we would get closer and closer to looking into it, I would get super cold feet. And this isn't something you and I have really ever talked about. I would get super cold feet and be, be like, but, but, but it's not America. And like the, the stores aren't the same and the restaurants aren't the same. And I don't know the, the culture here. Like I know home, you know? So you're right. They're like on a stepping stone, but they're not home. Yeah. You know, and so to to expect anyone to act totally comfortable or okay, even as far along as Moira is and Emily, I think it's a long road. While we're in Canada, for people that are never going to adjust to things up there. Oh boy. Let's talk about the Waterfords. Wow. So Fred and Serena, what a ride with them this time. Again, <laughs> with Serena, I want to talk about that medical examination. I want to talk about how strange that was. I mean, again, on one hand, they're treating her. We And we discussed this a little bit before this in terms of like, they're not really being treated like prisoners. Mm hmm. And yet they certainly aren't being treated kindly. And I'm really looking at Serena because if you're, if you are going with the idea that the women of Gilead are being essentially kidnapped and taken against their will to be there, then I know Serena has a whole other backstory. But as far as this medical team is concerned, the way that they were treating her, the way they were like, turn 
And it was like dark in there. Like I've never been in a doctor's office that looks anything like that. That looked like a Gilead doctor's office. Why are they showing that as Canada? That actually reminded me of like a a police processing kind of thing. How how she had to take the picture that and then turn. Dark? No, 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 no. I know that Stop it was. That's second. not that was. I'm just but... talking about how. No, it wasn't. The way they set the scene. Oh, it was very cold. It looked exactly like what would ha- what was going on with Lawrence. You know, back over in the cold still room. Like this was so strange to me. Why were they presenting Canada like this? I think maybe it was that they wanted us to get a sense of how Canada thought of Serena. Okay, talk to me more. I want to hear well, all about this. Well, I mean, you've already you've already outlined it the way that the technician or the doctor or nurse or whoever was dealing with her. It was a funny balance between asking the kind of questions about the bruising and stuff like that or the finger. Did he do that? Like, like those kind of questions that would make you think, is this person taking an interest in Serena on some personal level? Well, have some compassion. Right. But then say, over there. Yeah. Turn. Right. Like all this. I, it was so weird. It was so weird. I didn't understand it. Again, I don't get why they're painting Canadians and the Canadian intake system to be so cold. And it, it's very different. This is very different. Do you remember them being like to Emily being like, let's get glasses for you. Let's help you with this. Like, I mean, they were like so soothing and calming. Let me solve it for you. Okay, I know it's Serena Joy. I get it. The, the nurse yes. or whomever, yeah. the medical professional. She freaking knew. No, no, she was from America. Tell me more. That that's all you need to know, really. Like oh. she was from America, and okay. maybe she was know, feeling betrayed. Exactly. Oh, okay. She was like f this b. <laughs> f this b. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> I feel, I still feel badly. (laughs) I still think they should have made a better distinction that they were on solid ground. You know, like it could have still been uncomfortable for Serena, but I don't think they should have painted the staff as being the way they were. All right. Here's another idea. Okay. I want to hear it. Go for it. Maybe the facility that they're in is something akin to the United Nations in that Mm -hmm. it is not Canadian soil per se. It is Okay. So these aren't else. our nice Canadians we're dealing with. Right. Okay. It, it could be an American. It could be someone else. I don't know. I don't I, I don't know. But perhaps that would explain why they have the run of the place, why they why they're dressed in normal clothes, why they're dealing with Tuello who's a an American agent of some some sort. That could You think exp- Mark is a American agent? Yeah. How how Tuello? Yeah, when he arrested when he's not he French. When he arrested them when they crossed over into Canada, he said something like, You are arrested on behalf of the United States government, blah, blah, blah. I mean On behalf of. But I thought he was a Canadian. I think he's an American. Oh. Well I'm going down as I think he's Canadian official. Well. <laughs> we agree to disagree at this point. Okay, so I'm going back to my bittersweet. Because on one hand, you have an abused woman getting medical attention even for the thing on her back and someone looking at her hand and all those things. But then you had the other side of her being complicit in so many different ways and being someone who they are looking at in an ugly way and treating her badly on one hand. Yay, you're out. And someone's looking at your, your injuries and all that kind of stuff. And also you're being treated like shit. And so it's like, (laughs) Oh God, this was a, this was quite a day. Feeding into that argument is the discussion that happens between the two of them in the little chapel, you know, when Fred is saying, I'm as you made me. Uh-huh. Um, and we know that the backstory with them is that Fred was a much more spineless man than he w- is now. And and to some extent, I believe 
her books became the backbone of some of the doctrine of at least maybe the religious aspect of the sons of Jacob and how they formed their government. So that's very true in that I always thought that Fred was about 49% bullshit when it came to his belief in the Gilead name. Okay. You know, he just wanted to take advantage right. of his position. And she says that once you got power. But here he is, powerless, and he's still kind of clinging to that those guns. That they're making God seem so small. All and- that stuff. And he's saying that to her. There's no advantage in talking to her about it anymore because that ship is sailed. Well, you know, I mean, the brainwashing, like you said, I mean, I'm who you made me to be. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. The message really did seep in and become much bigger than I think it has. I think it has. Yeah. Well, so did you think that Serena was completely naive to think that she could come in and and just sweet talk Fred into dropping any comments about her? Totally. Because at this point, Fred has to know that he was conned into this whole Canadian trip anyway on her word, her feminine wiles, whatever you want to call it. Yes. She got him to gum north. And now he's in jail. That's a, that's a very fresh wound to try to poke again. I thought for about for for a millisecond she had a shot. Oh, she has a very pretty smile, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I thought she was going to have a better argument than she even really got out. She just really started to barely talk about it, and he's like, "You used to be better at this." <laughs> like, I mean, there's basically no case being laid out. So mm. yeah, you're right. He did sniff it out before she even got the machine rolling. I mean, I thought she was going to say something more, but mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. what do you think about the Waterfords and this gigantic bombshell that turns out Serena's pregnant? Well, for one thing, I think it's what's uh, what's give me the right word to to tie into the fact that she was so much up to Ello's butt last week or in the first episode regarding smoking. And then she finds out that she's prego while she's out on a smoke break again. I think that's probably just the writers being cute, maybe just tossing in that she's been hoping for motherhood this whole time. And so she hasn't been caring about that kind of thing with the with regard to her own temple, if you will. I think that's just them being funny in a very sick kind of way. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. There Not you go. Not treating your temple very well and then finding out it's inhabited. And then the moment she decides, you know what? I'm ready to stop being Mrs. Waterford. Yeah. Turns yeah. out. Turns she's, out. You, you're she's DNA in, tied to the Waterford. Involved, right? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, so what do you think? I mean, it's we definitely believe it's Fred's. We haven't seen any malfeasance on her part. It has been a very long time, though. Did they get it on at the farmhouse? Like a long time ago. I mean, a long time ago. Well, you're right. Because they got they got caught before the end of the season. Oh yeah. So it would, but it would be a month, six weeks, somewhere in there. Only. I mean, in our world, we've had a whole pandemic in the middle. Of, <laughs> we have. Of that. That's true. That's very true. Wow. I don't know. I just felt like it was longer than that. But maybe you're totally right. I think I could be completely my my COVID time 
mind is very messy in terms of like, how long has, has time been? I don't know anymore. Remember well, Fred with that uh, commander casual gray suit that he was wearing? Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Commander casual. Oh my gosh. What do you think is going to happen with the Waterfords? Is Fred going to soften when he finds out he's going to be a papa? My personal opinion is that they will get even more hardcore about each other trying to get possession of the baby somehow you know she's gonna want it all for her he's gonna want it all for him but that doesn't even make sense no it kind of does though because wouldn't it then put her in the position of being june and ending up having to give her baby up that was a gileadian conceived on gilead soil and he's the father what if she does have to give it up to him oh my god that would be horrendous wouldn't it that is oh boy that is a, a is maybe a long running theme that I didn't pick up on but theme of reversal yeah that is a much longer burn it is wow because think about how but think of how that has worked this whole time where it was like Serena was the abuser then she became the abused what if now she becomes the pregnant one who then has to give up her baby ah. nice yes that's good that's good storytelling though if they do it right. I think it will be amazing. And also, wow, I mean, last laugh on Serena, no? Yeah, we're all standing and laughing at Serena. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's terrible. Pointing. <laughs> shame, right. shame. Hoot, hoot, hoot. <laughs> Let's get back to the farm, Paul, because we have some ladies waiting for us there that had quite an adventure. As we learned at the end of last episode... June has rediscovered her fire and that it is time to act. That is brought to a head when guardians start sniffing around for old Mr. Pogue and yeah. uh, they might take a deeper look. So we, we got to goo. Yeah, they got a pack, bag and haul. So that's the situation that we're in. And she has to go with that guardian who, again, highly suspicious of him at the beginning of this, taking her over to this house because the woman who has the information can't come to June. Paul, who were you expecting to be on the other end of this information? I was expecting someone that couldn't easily move. Like someone in a wheelchair or like an right. elderly person. Exactly. Something in some way. That like is that. how I imagined it too. And I couldn't figure out any other scenario. Like I was just completely, I had this like old British type woman in my head in like a wheelchair, like going along. We just watched uh, a pilot that had a similar situation in it. And I was like thinking like, that is who was pictured in my head. Huh? Who is this woman going to be? And what is she going to tell? I was not expecting to find Jezebel's part two. Turns out they don't uh, let the Jezebels out. <laughs> they got to stay. What are you talking about? Turns out <laughs> nobody gets out, Paul. Everyone has to stay put. I mean, there's no like day loners. There never was a day loner. <laughs> Whatever you're talking about. Anyway, super surprised when he parks the truck and the back opens and there's a Martha waiting to guide her right in to speak to this person in the greenhouse. Fascinating because if you remember, Serena and June had a lot of conversations in the greenhouse. And so I was instantly getting like some wiggy little vibes. Well, let's think about it symbolically, even though there's another take on verdancy and green and life and plant life and all that kind of stuff, which usually means life anew, right? right. Good uh, things. Good things. In this episode, we get both. 
bittersweet. Also, we're going to be growing our our nightshade. Our homegrown poisons. Yeah. So did you think that this woman was going to become June's next project? Did she see some Moira? Were we getting some more transference here? She's seeing her oh, friend Moira. Boy. I didn't in, in the moment, but now I do. And she's hellbent on saving them. Yeah, you're right. It, it might have been something in the back of her mind that until she had the poison plot in her lap that she didn't know what to do with. But once it was all, it was like A plus B equals poison all the commanders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that went super well. So then this whole reveal that Esther is poisoning Keys when she look when they look up and I was like, oh, shit. She's been poisoning him. I was like, oh, this is too good because they just need to take a lot of that with them everywhere they go. Oh, definitely. Do you know anything about it? I mean, they wore gloves when they were cutting it. So I imagine you don't want it seeping (laughs) into your pores. Yeah, it's one of the most deadly plants that is out there. However, the only place that I really know it from is from Nightmare Before Christmas. It's what Sally uses to, uh, to poison her evil scientist captor to be able to get out on a regular basis. It always seems to be a an ingredient in a good witch's brew. Yeah. Uh, in Halloween movies. Uh, <laughs> Some nightshade. Yeah. yeah. So did you think that this plan was going to work? And did you agree with June that she should even be doing it? She's running a terrorist organization, right? Yes. And so that's what terrorists do. They do this kind of stuff. Is it going to be super visible if all of a sudden 30 or so commanders just die at this whorehouse? Probably, but you know, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? After the fact, right. So here's the thing that I think was really important. I thought it was smart that they laid the groundwork that because of the kids getting out, there had been all this random violence and or upheaval, like that that there had been an explosion at a checkpoint, that there had been like different things that were happening around. I think that was really important to, Mm. to shove that into our brains because it then allowed for there to be an irregularity at a Jezebel somewhere without it necessarily, because otherwise doesn't it point to like, oh, well, June just went from this incident to then that's where they were. And then that's where it went. You know, like it was too straight line. But I think when she added in that info, that's what allowed June like, okay, so maybe a random situation could happen. Kind of, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. It's like when first base gets overthrown, right? Sure. You can run right through it. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. You can always overrun first base, but anyway. Oh, come on, <laughs> come on. But anyway, we actually go through this plan and we've got Esther again, right in there, right in there working the poison with June. We're going to have to leave the farm. Now, what do you think about June leaving our girls when we know that the Guardians had already done a check and said, we will come back later. Big, you don't need risk. to get them. You don't need to get them out of the bar- out, out of the barn where they're doing their work. We'll just stop in later. Big fat risk. Like I said a second ago, she's leading a terrorist organization, but in a a lot of ways, it's only her first day, right? Right. The burden and the responsibility of actually deciding the day in, day out operations of how they all stay alive, that's a brand new thing to this book editor. Yeah. Yes, she might have killed or poisoned, disabled a number of commanders, and that's on one hand satisfying but in exchange she might have gotten the other handmaids caught killed she, she got herself caught yeah we're gonna get into that so this is uh, a growing pain for sure in her in her lessons in leadership well you're saying that but hold up now because you were like this has to be it 
this has to be the last time she got caught. You're saying growing pain. No kidding. Come on now. I mean, just plot wise, I I mean, uh, she's gonna get loose again. I'm pretty sure. I don't know, but it seems like what she's gonna. What do you mean gonna... get loose again? I thought you said this has to be it. In terms of like, how many times can this cycle of her yeah. escaping, getting found, escaping, getting found, how can, how can often can they literally recycle this? I don't know. I'm asking you, how often can they recycle this? And you're saying she's going to get loose again? Well, I think the, the plot is going to continue to revolve around her exploits. I Absolutely. So I am super curious. When they pulled up and we had this guardian who, again, psh- Turns out total red shirt, throw away, gets shot. I couldn't even tell where the shots were coming from. I was like, were the shots coming from in the barn? Were the shots coming from behind? What? I don't even know. But then when I saw all those laser red dots on her, I was like, I was frozen. I was like, girl, this <laughs> went shit. <laughs> shit. You just <laughs> saved a bunch of people in theory or at least wreaked havoc there. Because that's all we really know, right? Because where are those girls running to? Right. The farmhouse? or 13, 14 miles down the street the other way, whatever, they're all heading because we we don't know if our handmaids made it out with Esther and headed somewhere or were they all captured? Well, Nick did ask, where are they? He did. So crossed fingers, right? That, Somehow they had already taken off. We have some suspicion maybe that Alma... Although she doesn't want to take responsibility, she was kind of tasked by June to, you know, step it up a little bit. That's For my her only own hope. self-preservation. That's my only hope out of that whole bunch. They were getting themselves ready. I mean, they knew they were going to go. I mean, when June left, she said, make sure Esther has good walking shoes, good running shoes, because it's going to be a long walk. So they were in preparation. So my crossed fingers is that they made it out you know, at that point and and that they really did have to search the house. And that's why all the lights were on the way they were. Uh Now, I mean, ah, about June having stuck her neck out for this other group of people, because otherwise she just would have been with them and they would have eluded authorities again and it would have been no big deal. But because she went and did this, I think it's all coming down to the same reason why Moira doesn't know she can't leave Nicole because she's trying to live there for June. June's trying to do stuff, I think, for the Moiras of the world still in Gilead. It's like, uh, like if everyone just put their blinders on and walked forward, they all probably would have been fine, you know, but they went backwards. I don't know what to chalk it up to. I think it's survivor guilt. I think that's what it is. I think that's what drove her back to trying to save more people, honestly, I, that that she could get only so far before she turns and goes back for more because she can't feel free until they're all free. If I'm giving the impression that I don't think that the, that their motivations aren't coming from an honest sense of like doing their best to help the most at any given point in time, then I'm doing, then I'm saying things wrong because I think that they are as characters like i don't think that she went back to do to jezebel's necessarily to be like rambo or something like that even though they did make that joke earlier yeah this is the way that she thinks she can do the most good it's just she hasn't quite learned how to weigh it all exactly in terms of where she needs to be where like she could have just simply said if i'm not back by five o'clock go i'll catch up that would have been a leadery thing to say she really was judging the other handmaids for dancing and for enjoying something for a minute, for essentially getting distracted from the focus, right? Y'all are all doing this when we need to be focused on Esther and we need to be focused on these other things. And in a way, and I know this is not, I mean, don't misread me, the Jezebel situation certainly was not women dancing and enjoying themselves, but it was like distracted though. 
June got distracted from the main plan. And the problem is, again, this is a very bittersweet situation. Is it wrong for her to want to help other people? No, of course not. But was it the right thing to do? Not for June. And, you know, and I don't know if it was the right thing to do for the rest of the group here. It's so difficult. She... She had been telling the other girls like, you know, like and really judging them that they just really they needed to not think that this was enough. Right. Right. Like what they were doing was not as far as we were going to go. And yet I felt like she was kind of pulled back into this other place of going back to a Jezebel situation and kind of reliving that world. And she didn't move forward, I guess. It was very sad. And oh, my gosh, again, that moment. With Nick being like, I'm I'm gonna try to keep you alive. I don't even know what to do. When you see Nick, what what do you even think in your head if you're June? I do not think that I can just, you know, implicitly trust this guy at this point, given the time that's passed, what he's done while he's been away, that he's a commander now meant that he did enough of the right things that Gilead likes that he may not be the guy that left. I mean, when he left, he was Holly's dad. He went to the front in Chicago or whatever. Yes, he was in Chicago. Okay, so let's remember where we were with Nick. Go back a little bit. Go back a little bit. Last so, we saw him, he was like on a train, like deploying. Heading to this mission to can- to Chicago. I think it was Chicago. Okay. Now he's come back at, at, at a commander's rank. He was, he was a guardian when he left. Yes. And he came back a commander. And so I can only assume he did stuff that they liked out there. His investment in the Gilead, you know, way of life is now all of a sudden more than it was. Yeah. Fascinating about that. Really fascinating. I mean, I guess that would also explain his motivations with Lawrence in the first episode in terms of like, hang on a minute. If you've got some tactical strategies that we can use, then we need to keep you around. Like as much as we're taking that as like, oh, he saved his life. Now, when you're talking about it now, it's making me think more like, Nick had been in Chicago and he knew what the commander was talking about then and was like, mm, that's making me, my brain is, can you feel my cogs are moving where I'm like, hang on a second. He didn't save Lawrence's life in a way. Like we kind of thought like he found a way to save him by making him a consultant. Right. But what if he's trying to further Gilead because he found the person who got a better strategy? Uh-oh. It very well could be. Uh-oh. Very well could be. Yikes, Nick. I don't know what to think. Both things both things can be true. He can mm. want to be June's man and, and want to be a powerful leader in Gilead. Yes. Damn. It's happened before. This is us has taught us a lot to bring over to Handmaid's Tale. This is us, Paul. Nick is us. June is us. We've all got the whole both things can be true. You can feel one way and act another and then regret that and then be like, oh no, but I needed to do that. And then, ah, now I've got all these red lights on me. (laughs) That's funny. It can happen. What's funny? Well, a lot of times when I think about shows that that I like, that I like to follow, oftentimes I can find a character, even if it's not a main character, that I kind of assign as having Paul-like qualities, right? Oh, tell me more. Like, I recognize myself in this person and I want that person to do well because they remind me of me in some way. If I was in this story, very likely I'm not going to be the Indiana Jones. I'm going to be someone not quite as swashbuckling. So who are you in Handmaids? I don't know yet. I haven't found that person. You might be Nick in that mm. you're, you you would have been, I, I don't think you would have signed on to be a part of this, but you might have 
ended up going along because you felt like you didn't have a choice. And well quaffed. That too. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. You do have big eyebrows. (laughs) There's that. I have that in common, hair-wise. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So what do we think? Give me some predictions or things you want to see happen. Well, I know last episode I said that I wanted to see a split amount of time between Canada and Gilead. But given the developments so quickly uh, with June having been caught and now that I've seen Canada and I've seen, well, actually Moira's just having like kind of a, a, a little crisis of conscience and all that. And Emily's sort of boring. Um, <laughs> Emily's sort of boring. She just, uh, she's, she's, she's lost me. Right. I, I, which is sad. We were so invested in her story, but I, she has really lost me. And who's dressing Emily up there? I, I don't know. I mean, is this like the church bin that she's I, choosing Maybe. From? It might be. They might be given like hand-me-down clothes. It's possible. At any rate, this isn't a fashion show. This is just a regular old podcast. So given that, I think we can get along with, you know, maybe a, 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 a two-third, one-third split in, with Gilead and then back to Canada for a little bit of Waterford. Because I got to see, the, I got to see Fred's spit take <laughs> when they tell him that he's going to be a father for realsies. I think that's going to be some good stuff, right? I hope they have a gender reveal party. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's this- a water bird. Oh my right. gosh. Well, this is Caroline. And this is Paul. Thanks so much for listening. And please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate, review, and subscribe to Pod Clubhouse. Give us five stars, people. It helps other people find the show. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.